0: Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio-Technica, and Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 121.
1: Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreau.
0: Thanks, Chuck. And hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 121. You're listening to my guest today is Jim Greer. Jim Greer is a Bay Area record producer. I said to him, I said, you know, you've done so much, I kind of need a little focus on telling people who you are. So, uh, you know, he basically said that he's a record producer who's massed a wide variety of credits through many years of wielding multiple instruments and knowing how to fiddle some knobs which I thought was funny, but uh, some of his highlights include writing and producing with or for Galactic, Macy Gray, Handsome Boy Modeling School, Cindy Harvell, Andrew St. James, Diego's Umbrella, MC Lars, Del the Funky Homo Sapien, Irma Thomas, Ronda Brothers, Butterscotch, and many more. And he's done a lot of writing and... uh, Placement of music in various films, TV shows, and commercials He's a very, very active uh, guy here in the Bay Area and around the world. Really, it's super interesting, super passionate. It's been around the Bay Area for a while, and I finally got the chance to sit down and talk with him. We ran into each other at uh, Nam. Funny, we la- leave the Bay Area to go down to Los Angeles, and that's where we run into each other. So we agreed we'd meet up. So I reached out, and uh, he kindly agreed. So we sat down at. Uh, The studio he's currently at in Berkeley. So Jim Greer coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Around about the 100th show of Working Class Audio, I started to talk about some stuff I got going on that we're working on for the next year. Uh, We're well into the year of 2017, and uh, I have yet to uh, reveal anything. Uh, But I do want to assure you I'm working on a couple things, still working out the kinks. And uh, yeah, I got some stuff coming up that's all I can really say. Irons in the fire, pans in the fire, plates in the air, whatever they say. Anyways, got some stuff coming up, so rest assured the podcast will continue on, but there's going to be some extra stuff I think you might enjoy. So uh, just stand by, be patient as you have been, and uh, there it is. If you have any questions or comments, obviously, you feel free at any time to uh, email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. Maybe you have a guest suggestion, Uh, maybe you have a comment or about a show, maybe you have a question about a guest. Sometimes I mention things on the show, and you all are really good about following up with me on certain things. Like you'll say, hey, you know, you mentioned this, and uh, I really need that right now, so can you send me that information? So happy to do that for you. So moving on here, uh, you know, in the monologue of the show, I've recently been doing a thing where we actually get on the phone through Skype generally, and uh, we call past guests from the show and we just check in with them just for a short conversation you know generally uh, just a couple minutes just to say hey what's going on what are you doing what are you working on what's uh, what's new what's inspiring so uh let's do that now let's actually um i've sent a text to our past guest past uh, wca alum don gunn who's up in seattle we're gonna check in with don don's show was uh wca number 20 yeah way way back there Uh, Let's see. That show came out. When did that come out? I posted that May fourth, of twenty fifteen. (laughs) Yes, that was quite a ways back. So uh, yeah, let's check in with Don and see what Don's up to. See what's going on with him. Let's do that right now. Dialing Don Gunn.
1: Matt.
0: Don. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm all right.
1: I'm a little, uh, I'm a little tired.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I just called to uh, include you in a new section I'm doing on the show where I actually called previous guests and just checking with them and find out what they're working on, what's going on, what's new, what's inspiring, what's what's killing you. Nice. So, uh, so what's new? Anything changed? Any any major changes?
1: Uh, still doing what I do. Been probably mixing more than tracking lately. Been getting a lot of projects from other places in. So last year I did two projects from Japan. One was a solo record by a singer called Gotch, who's the singer for Asian Kung Fu Generation. And that was produced by Chris Walla, who passed the mixing over to me, uh, and then another band from Tokyo called Turntable Films. So they mixed the split EP that they were doing.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: then a lot of work a lot of work from a producer in LA uh, called Ben Greenspan, who's been working with a whole bunch of people that are just, they're writing phenomenal songs. And it's way poppier than what I'm usually used to, so it's been Kind of a fun challenge, not my normal bag. <laughs> so Harrison Kipner, who's been out on the road opening for Rick Astley on his U.S. tour. Uh, Emily Kinney, who's a actress, was in The Walking Dead, I guess. Um, and she's now branching out into singing also, and she's a great singer.
0: Why, did they kill her off on The Walking Dead?
1: Yeah, she's gone, apparently. <laughs> I don't know, I've never seen her stuff, uh, But everybody said, oh, yeah, she, she died. I guess that's what people do on this show.
0: That's what happens. Yeah. And you're still doing everything you're doing in the same place, right?
1: Yep, yep. So I still have my studio in the backyard.
0: Cool. And uh, anything inspiring of late that's uh, driving you, or whether it be artistically or uh, recording-wise or business-wise?
1: Um. I've been kind of, I'm, I'm branching out a little. Uh, I've been working with Sean Costello from Valhalla DSP for a number of years. There are a bunch oh, yeah. of my presets in, in his reverb plugins. So I'm sort of coming on board to do some additional work with him, take some load off of him so he can keep developing. <laughs> and, and it's the kind of work that I can do when I get up at 5.30 in the morning and can do before I go to the studio. So that's, that's, we're sort of putting that in place right now as we're ramping up for the next release because I need more to do in my life. Yeah, we all do, don't we? (laughs) Yeah, I don't really need to sleep ever. So doing that, trying to play and write more music somehow. Um, I've been working on some library music with a couple of composer friends here in town and we've already gotten some placements. So that's been kind of cool just to, sort of grease the creative gears in a different way than mixing does. Oh, yeah. It's nice to remember that I sometimes can be a musician, although I'm a drummer mostly, so that doesn't really count, does it?
0: <laughs> we have that in common.
1: Yeah, we hang out with musicians. <laughs> um, yeah, it's trying to, you know, for me, it's like I don't ever want to be bored, so I'm always trying to just look for other new, fun, and interesting things to do. And getting back to doing some writing and playing some keyboards has been fun. Uh, I actually just put out an EP with a couple of other guys who are two of my favorite electronic musicians. We've been writing over the last three years remotely because one's in Portland and the other's in in Pennsylvania. So we just put out an EP, and we're working on the rest of the record. It's a slow process, but we're doing something, and it's it's out in the world. Well, good for you. Yeah, just kind of, yeah. Sounds like you're uh, uh, keeping it fresh. Trying to keep it fresh. Trying to keep it busy and uh, occasionally get to see my wife.
0: Well, cool, Don. Uh, great to talk to you. Good to catch up. Keeping it fresh. I love thank it. Thank
1: you. Yeah, continued success to you as well. Well, thank you.
0: All right. Well, we'll chat again. Perfect. Okay. Thanks, Don. All right. Good to check in with Don Gunn. Always good to check in with the the previous guests and see what's going on. Always anxious to hear what they've been doing And I want to mention something to you. I don't know if you all have uh, noticed it, but if you haven't been over to uh, gearsluts.com for a while, gearsluts, of course, is an avid supporter of working-class audio. Jules and the crew over there have drastically, drastically changed the website up. And, uh, man, it's super cool. So if you haven't been over there, there's there's a lot going on. There's, of course, the traditional forums. uh, There's user and pro reviews. uh, There's a gear database. There's a marketplace. Lots going on. I love, I've always talked about it on the show. I love seeing what uh, the new gear is that's out. Even though we're not big on talking about gear too much on the show, I do, I do love going to see what uh, what's being released, always uh, what's new. Also, what's for sale? You know, I always like to just go to these websites and check out, you know, what's for sale? How much is it selling for? Uh, what's lost its value? What's gaining in value? That's always an interesting thing microphones, man, microphones just seem to, uh, well, certain microphones just seem to gain uh, value as time goes along. Uh, Every time I do this, it always underscores what um, a lot of our guests say when they talk about gear. They always talk about uh, buying really, really good gear. If you're going to buy gear, if you're going to spend money, don't get the quick fix. Don't just satisfy your, whatever it is, your retail urges to buy something just for the sake of buying and buying cheap stuff. Buy good stuff. If I get stuff that you're going to have for a while, so something that might increase in value or hold its value at least, I'm going through that uh, constantly, always evaluating, second second guessing myself when I'm uh, thinking about making a purchase. I always stop and go, is this going to hold its value or increase in value, or is it just you know kind of throwaway? So yeah, always something to consider. But uh, yeah, check out the marketplace over at Gearsluts.com and see what you think. That's about it. I think lots of talking. Let's get into it and talk some more with our friend Jim Greer, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Check, check, check. Perfect. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the coffee as well.
2: It is my pleasure to make coffee for you. (laughs) I can make a good pot of coffee. You make a strong
0: black cup of coffee, damn fine cup of coffee. What I really would love to know is where recording took a hold of you and caused you to move into it professionally, whether as an engineer, as a producer, as a performer, what, what was the, the point in your life that you can recall?
2: It almost feels like an accident, but it wasn't. And that's, that's like, that's the first thing I'll say. But um, it started when I was 12 or 13 and I was jamming on my piano a lot. I had a friend that we would get together and play music and we were at the, we would go to the keyboard, the music store uh, in Kent, Ohio, called Woodsies, and drool at keyboards and play on them, just like everybody else. And and one day, the somebody there was like, hey, you know, we rent out these four tracks, you can rent them for like $40 for a week of time. And I was like, you know, what's a four track? And, and the guy <laughs> explained to me what I could do with it. And I was like, that sounds like the greatest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Like, you're telling me that I can, you can give me that thing and a tape and I can come home and stick a mic on my piano and record the piano and then record more piano and then record hitting a thing and then like record singing or talking or whatever and layer it up. He was like, Oh yeah. And I was like, that sounds amazing. So I, at some point in when I, around that age, I rented one and I just was, I didn't have a lot of money. So I didn't really have, you know, I didn't have any gear. I couldn't just go buy anything. I didn't have a credit card. I was just like 12 and my parents wouldn't buy me stuff. So, um, so uh, I rented one and a friend of mine came over and we just, yeah, we recorded like my piano in my living room and a, an electric guitar um, into some amp or maybe even just directly into the thing. And that just made me feel something that I had never felt. And it was just this, this, this sculpting, this art form that for somebody who was not particularly good at anything else, and also I was, I, you know, I'm a self-taught musician. So I say I'm a piano player, but I, you know, I'm no like Harry Connick Jr. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I can play a good piano, but, but I, I, you know, there, there's a difference, you know, there's a talent level. There's like people who are like athletes on their instruments and I'm not, but I'm, I'm really good at this. It's recording stuff. And that was the thing that made me go, this is the most fun. And it just gave me this feeling. And then I did it again <laughs> When I was in high school, I met a friend, this Korean guy named Eugene Song, who had his parents were like doctors. So he had in his dorm room at the where I went to high school, he had he had a Roland killer Roland Jupiter keyboard and a four track and all this, you know, other keyboards and things. And I started hanging out with him and basically just got while the entire time I was in high school, any spare minute I had, I went to his room and played around on, you know, and we made songs together and I recorded hundreds of sequenced, like, multi-tracked jams that were all greatly influenced by New Order and The Cure and all the other great stuff that was happening <laughs> in the late 80s or had already happened in the early 80s, and this was, like, in the late 80s. So I was doing that, and then at the same time, I had a band with, like, so in the town where I went to high to, to school, the town where I grew up, there was a, a public high school and a private high school. I went to both of them, but I finished my high school years at the private high school so there were a lot of boarding students so my friend had a dorm room that's why he had all this stuff in his dorm room and then i was friends with lots of local kids that i had grown up with so i had a band with a bunch of local kids who didn't go to the private high school so my this band that i made where i played keyboards in the band We put on a battle of the bands in my sophomore, junior and senior year where like we just wanted a gig. Mm -hmm. So I went to the school people and I was like, can I have a battle of the bands on the stage at our like auditorium? And they were like, sure, go ahead. Like do it on some Saturday night and have fun. So I, I did these battle of the bands. I was playing keyboards in my band. I was recording demos with Eugene. And I think by the time I finished high school you know, I was just clearly this was, I was going to pursue this. And I, I, I was so clueless. I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I just wanted to do a little bit of everything. And it's funny because that's exactly what my life is now. <laughs> I mean, it couldn't have been more like more prescient about, you know, I was like, I'm making cool, like new order songs with my Korean friend in our dorm room with just drum machines and a Kauai K3 sequencer and blah, blah, blah. And then, meanwhile, I'm playing like, like you know, I'm playing rock and roll keyboards with, and we're playing um, what are you know, uh, nothing but covers, playing Pink Floyd songs and Genesis songs and um, Steve Miller songs, and just you know, like every other high school band starts off with, I guess. And then um, after, and then I went to college at University of Virginia, and I started a new band there. Like the first two weeks. I just found three dudes and we like started playing music just right away. At this point I had managed by this time I had managed to buy myself a little Tascam four track. So I had like three weird old clunky keyboards and a Tascam four track and one microphone. So I took all that stuff into my dorm room and I had it all set up so I could record. And then after my first year in college, I went down to the coast of North Carolina back with the high school band. And we we became like a professional band, and we got a, a gig as a house band at this country saloon called the Long Branch, and it was like straight out of the Blues Brothers, like when they played Bob's Country Bunker. And we we managed to score this gig, playing four nights a week, five sets a night. Like we had to learn like eighty seven songs. You know, we played Dark Side of the Moon like the entire album, and I had my I had this weird rolling keyboard, and I had it programmed to be like, tick 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 tick. tick, tick. <laughs> with all these drum sounds and things. And after that experience of playing every night for a whole summer and having just the greatest time, like, so much fun. And I just couldn't even believe that you could do that. I just still, like, I I still can't believe it. Like, when I'm on the road or I get to go play a show, I'm just like, this is awesome. Like, for some reason, it just... I don't know. The two different things, like being able to like show up at a club and set up and have somebody listen to you. And like, I don't even care anymore if it's like one people or a thousand. I just don't even care. I just like want to be great for that 45 minutes or whatever. And after that experience, I just I just knew I just knew I wanted to to do this like all the time. And then all through college, I kept I I found a studio in Charlottesville. I found this guy with a studio in his basement and recorded there a bunch with my band, we recorded probably 30 or 35 songs. And, uh, you know, but I was all, uh, when you're in college, you're very much in this like safety net. So it's totally cool to be doing something as as a hobby that you're very passionate about, but then you leave and then you have no longer have any responsibilities except for to care for yourself and find yourself a place to live and stuff. And, um, and of course this was back in the days when you could be 23 and afford to like come to the Bay area and just get an apartment, for example. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Which is now like without a six figure salary, all the kids I know that are 21 that I now work with that I make music with. They're like, why would I ever leave my parents' house? Like who can afford (laughs) $40,000 a year in rent? So anyways, that's a different topic, but, um, I came here to the Bay Area after graduating from UVA, like literally the day after graduation. I drove out here with a bunch of friends and and my band. And I really came to the wrongest place because there's not really a music industry here. Uh, I mean, there never really has been. There's always been music and lots of stuff, but there's not, certainly no LA or New York. But I came here anyways. I just had this, all those experiences, all that recording you know, nothing professional. I never released, nothing was ever released. I vainly tried to like send tapes around to a record labels one time and like nobody cared and that's fine. I just was like, I was like, this is what I do. This is what makes me happy. Like when I'm doing this music stuff, whether it's sitting with the four track or setting up and playing with my band or playing on a stage, that's where I'm happy. So it was very much a like happiness thing. Like this is what makes me happy. This is what I feel good doing. I started really realizing that that the production side, the recording side was just such an infinite well of creativity to dive into just, just infinity because you can just always tap in and make something new and you don't even have to worry about it. You can just do it and, and, and you can decide what to do with it later. And, but, I, but at the time I didn't even know the word producer, I had never, I don't think I ever probably even said the word producer unless I was like, well, George Martin's a great producer. Like, I didn't know what that even meant. Like, (laughs) I just didn't, I didn't understand. Like, I didn't, I didn't know what it meant to be the producer. I didn't really understand that what I was really doing was figuring out how to become one. Because I didn't really understand what they did. And so when I got to the California, and then I started working at the Paradise Lounge Club, which is where my music career really started. I didn't realize
0: you worked at the Paradise. Yeah, I was
2: the booker there. And that's where it all started. That's where everything up until that point was practice. And then I needed a, basically I needed a job because I, I had been a bartender in college. I came here and I was bartending at the Mallard, is right down the street. And um, I was really tired of bartending. And I just realized after being in the Bay Area for like a year, I was like, if I don't get a job in the music business somehow, if I'm not around it, I'm never going to break in. What year was that? You were ninety six.
0: Okay. Okay.
2: Well, I had a band and my band was playing around. We played at bottom of the hill. We're still on like a poster there from like 1995. What band was that? It was called Ibiza, spelled I -I B-I-Z-A, like the island. We played a bunch of gigs and then like we played at Slim's, I think, and then there were no more there wasn't anywhere else to play, except we weren't really getting any very popular. And I didn't know what else to do. And then I was trying to get a gig at the Paradise Lounge and they wouldn't answer their phone. So booking hours back in the day before the internet, every club would be like, hi, our booking hours are Wednesday from 2 to 3. Call then to try and set up your show here, right? And send in your cassette demo thing. I called the Paradise Lounge, and they were like, hey, there's this really sarcastic message. They were like, hey, you know what? We're too busy to listen to all these demos, and all of you local bands and bands from all over the place that are trying to play here, you guys just maybe somebody should come down here and help us get through all these demos. And then maybe you can like get a gig here, something like that. And of course I was like, all right, I'll go do that. So I like, I was living in El Cerrito. I hung up the phone, like got on the BART, walked over to the paradise and made my way to the booking office and and the woman that was there the head of booking Tony Isabella she didn't even know that her assistant had left the message so she was like what are you talking about like why are you here who are you you know and i was like i'm here about the answering machine message i want to like help out and then play here and um and she she uh, she's like made me wait and then audra showed up audra was the assistant and then i uh, and yeah sure enough there were like 10 hefty bags filled with Demos that they had hadn't listened to for like nine months, and I mean, the Paradise was like the place to play, as you remember. Like every band on the West Coast that could draw that couldn't draw more than like eight hundred people, which is a lot of bands were trying to play there, and because of all the stages and the upstairs, and there you could have like five bands a night. I would say I grew up there. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing, and it was a great, really fun place to play, and fun place to work, and actually. Audra gave me the. She was like, "Fine, you're the intern. You clean up this mess." So for like two months, I did nothing but listen to, listen to the demos, organize everything, clean up their office. It was totally trashed. I totally cleaned it up. Were you paid? No, the, the first couple of months I was just interning. I was, okay, I just she was like, "You can be the intern." Okay, and I was like, "Fine." So I did all that. After two months, Audra walked in one day and said, "I just got offered the job of booking the Trocadero down the street." So I'm quitting you want my job? And I was like, yes, I want your job. And then suddenly here I was like a guy who had, you know, some skills and a band, you know, and wanting to like meet more bands. And I was literally sitting there answering the phone, like literally every manager, every record label, every band, you know, this was when like, this was before Sublime was big. So like, was like a long time ago and you know this was like everybody wanted marcy playground and sublime and and you know no doubt and tool and every 90s band came through and played there you name it they all played there just endless supply of musical goings on and because i was the talent buyer i wasn't i was the assistant talent buyer so that's a big deal in some circles at the time again i literally had no clue like <laughs> I didn't understand. I, did, I didn't understand that I had just walked into a pretty cool thing. And but I could go to any show. I would like pick up the phone. I'd call Fillmore Box Office. Hey, it's Jim from the Paradise. Can I come down to tomorrow night and see like Frank Black? Sure. You're on the list plus one. Like anything that was sold out. I went to the. I saw like Bowie and David Bowie at the Warfield. I saw Radiohead. Okay, Computer tour at the Warfield. I, I mean, I probably went to a hundred shows at the every other club, you know, I could go to Slim's anytime.
0: Exercising that booking power.
2: Yeah, man, big time. And um, I know this is a long story, but um, so I was still just a creative musician guy. And I was seeing so many bands and I was realizing, I was like, I'm a goddamn producer because I see a band play and I know how to make their record. And I don't know why I know that, but I know. I know like what it would take. I know what their best song is. Like, I am I have that skill. I know what their best five songs are. If all the songs are good, I know what the very, 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 very best one is. If they're all the best, I know which one is the one. I just knew it, and I knew that I knew it. And um, there was the Gun and Doll Show band that mm-hmm. you know about. And they invited me to see them at the Hotel Utah one night. And I went down, and they were totally amazing and, like, just mind-boggled my mind. And I loved every minute of it and started booking them for more shows. And then, and then I just realized I could produce them. Tony, the other, the head booker had started a label and I was like, Hey, like, I think I could sign, produce and record this, sign and produce this gun and doll show band. And she was like, cool, do it. And she like basically loaned me a little bit of money to, to basically go to them and say, hi, like, I can't really give you any money, but I can record your record. You know, I'll pay for everything. And just got to, we got to keep it, you know, reasonable and many meetings and things. And suddenly I was like in the studio producing their album. I started a process there that I still do, which is we did extensive pre-production. I went to like probably 30 rehearsals with them, like twice a week for three months or something. Wow. However many that is like, and going over, like make getting a whiteboard and writing down all the songs and hearing, you know, everybody's little weird idea. Cause so I have this thing there like any, even if... So many great songs have been, like, written on the way to the studio. Like, it just has happened in history, and I've read every rock biography there is. And so many songs are like, pull over the car, and they're like, they're like, hey, good looking, what you got cooking? And then they're like, that's it. And then they run in, and they write it and record it. And um, all the pre-production, getting all the ideas, whittling it down to, like, 12 or 14 tracks, jumping in the studio, recording it and having it be very well received and they were on the cover of BAM magazine and all that other stuff and played the headline, the Fillmore. And so to answer your question, all that home recording, all that studio experience, all that live experience. And then I I realized that I, I was able to find an artist whose music I really like and compartmentalize it and put it all together and like whittle it down and sculpt it into a, you know, what is currently accepted to be the the medium you know an album 30 minutes of music divided up across 10 songs or whatever that can present it that you can confidently go around and be like listen to this listen to this listen to this listen to this and it sounds sounds good and competitive and clean and fat and the songs are well arranged you know so that you never get bored listening to them and all that kind of stuff so I'm very comprehensive when I do when I do all that it's like Musical arrangement, lyric lyrics, like, and sometimes I don't need to do anything. Sometimes it's already great, but, but I know when there's like too much or too little or whatever, I know what to do. So, I mean, I hope that answers the question, but that's, it all started with that four track rental. There's
0: been a lot, of, a lot of people telling their stories on my show, you know, how they started and all the things that led up to where they're at now. And I hope that younger listeners can hear it and, maybe have a deeper appreciation for where they're at now and kind of be able to see a little further ahead, hearing all the stories. And your story really kind of personifies that, that it's like, you know, the plane all the nights in North Carolina at the, at the God awful country bar and just all those little links in the chain that add up to where you're at now. From my perspective of what I'm personally curious about, how did you get a grip on numerous things. First of all, how did you learn how to manage personalities in the studio when you work? Because, you know, I mean, it's no secret. (laughs) Bands, artists, there's there's a lot of variables. Sometimes they swing in one direction. Sometimes they swing in another direction. But when they're complex and difficult to deal with, what's your strategy for that?
2: Well, I think that I came in I came in well-equipped for that because I was born with a kind of steady diplomatic sort of personality, which again, one of those things I didn't know that I, I didn't understand that I had that mm-hmm. until, until much later in my life. But when I meet a new band uh, or a new artist, I'm a very adaptable person and it's not because I'm trying to be adaptable, but when I get in with a different set of people, uh, first of all, I, I, I tend to be like the quiet one. So I kind of come in and I kind of like absorb everybody's vibe for a little while, like when I'm getting to know someone new. Our artists are, are, are a narcissistic is, sounds like a bad word, but it's actually totally fine. Artists are kind of self-absorbed. And you have to kind of let them be self-absorbed. And if you try to make them come down to earth, even though some people are very down to earth, even the down to earth ones are still a couple inches off the planet if you try to do that too much you kind of ruin their their need and their love I'm self-absorbed too when I'm working on my four track thing when I'm doing my wor- world of work making a new making music even alone I'm like totally self-absorbed I'm in that moment and if someone comes in the room right then to be there for whatever reason I would like for them to be quiet and I would like for it to be all about me so like I want them to, hang out and I don't really want them to ask me lots of questions and I don't really want them to say, what is this bass thing doing? Like, why are you singing? But that's, you shouldn't sing about penguins. Like (laughs) I want to be able to do whatever I want and I want them to either support it or not acknowledge it. And I feel like I kind of treat, I treat people like that. So when I end up in a room with four or five new people, first I, I sort of like assimilate and learn all their personalities a little bit. And I, I'm pretty perceptive. So I've, I'm almost, at the, I mean, you know, the obvious jokes are like, you can talk to any drummer about like drummer stuff and it'll be an endless, con- great, awesome conversation because I've played every instrument and I've bought every piece of gear and I've had so many discussions. I can talk about like the ins and outs of bass pickups, guitar strings, drumsticks, you know what I mean? Like you name it. And so like, I find common ground with each person and i learned that there are some people that i'm just going to kind of like like leave alone and and i've also learned that artists um, i know i'm saying a lot i'm a little jumble but artists are like they're testing you even if they don't know they're testing you i've i cannot tell you how many times i've had i mean literally again and again and again and again i've had people say you know after we make after i work with someone officially for a, a month or a two months or a week or whatever. And they say, yeah, man, you know, like when you first came in, you know, it's like, I wasn't sure, but I liked the way you kind of hung back and, and let everybody, you know, get their vibe on. And, you know, I, you know, I, you know, we we've met with some other people who kind of come in and want to start telling people what to do. And they seem like they don't really care about individual people, but I have this natural inclination to care probably to a fault where like as soon as I get to know someone it's like they're important to me at least a little bit you know like so when I when I work with especially when music is involved so a band gets involved right away I'm like rooting for them and right away like if I can tell that the bass player could use a little guidance you know I I want to like prop them up and make them awesome so that all the other people in the band want to prop them up and make them awesome and I try to come in with a positive like positive style and that and that's just kind of, I think I would do that no matter what it was. I've noticed I'm just, that's just how I am. I think it's a part of natural thing, being able to manage personalities and, and definitely a thing you learn. And I've definitely like, I've definitely said the wrong thing to some artists where like, I realized I spoke too quickly. You got to be careful because you can't, you know, some people don't, don't like Elton John, you know? So if you, if you hear their song and you say, oh, it's just like, you know, goodbye, Yellow Brick Road, then the person goes, actually, I, hate elton john's music i don't know why i just hate <laughs> it i hate it so much and you're like oh well in that case like i just put my foot in my mouth because now you don't trust me basically it's pretty much what just happened so you know and i've, I've had that experience like i heard this singer once and he was just this amazing soul singer and he sounded you know he had a very daryl hall vibe and we were supposed to work on a song together and i was like dude you got the hollow notes thing down he was like oh my god don't even bring up hollow notes it's like my least favorite band in the history of time and i was just like part of me is like how could that be dude like they have some of the greatest songs ever so you're obviously tripping and you know i'm actually willing to, to talk like that to some people but it just depends on who they are <laughs> you know, <and> they, <laughs> when they're really young and inexperienced and they're like hollow notes sucks i'll be like no they don't you, know, you can think whatever you want but they don't suck you know like nobody sucks once they've sold a hundred million records.
0: Jim Greer here on the working class audio podcast. We're going to take a break from our conversation with Jim and we're going to talk about our friends, audio technica. Uh, if you haven't been over to the website, audio technica.com. It's definitely something to visit. There's a lot of products to check out. Uh, I know that, you know, they make microphones, but they do make other stuff. They make a, uh, turntables and phono cartridges, and you know they make headphones. They make some great headphones, don't they? Really enjoy them. Uh, The ATH-M40Xs, some of my favorites, and super economical, super working class. Under $100, easy. If you go look around, um, I think I've seen them as cheap as uh, $80. So uh, have a look. Check them out. They also offer a lot of other kind of headphones for many different kinds of situations, but uh, take a look at them. Audio-Technica.com. Check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. All right. Well, let's get back into it here with Jim Greer on the Working Class Audio Podcast.
2: Hanging back is probably the key, like the key words, like hang back, like assimilate, like listen, listen more than talk. And then you find, you know, as soon as I got that platinum record on the wall, maybe even a little before that, I've noticed that people people really respect my opinion which which is a really weird thing cuz you, before you have a platinum record you, have, you still have the same opinion but nobody people don't necessarily respect it as much or they just are like who are you you know as soon as you have some real shit going on then suddenly when you say you know i don't i don't think that the the four part harmony is going to work on this song cuz it's it's a little You know, it's gonna lean it in a little old fashioned direction. I think we stick a little more modern with the kind of two part harmony that you're hearing on some of these Kendrick Lamar songs. And people are like, Okay. Yeah, they're like, Okay, like you know exactly what you're talking about. So okay.
0: Which is crazy. And this this foster the people record that we're talking about that's on the wall that the audience can't see. Tell me about your involvement with that.
2: I wish that I had more to do with it. To be honest, most of it had to do with him doing the hit song on his own laptop in his own room but i met mark and recorded pretty much all of the demos that led up to torches being torches with him i was introduced just by a producer another manager person in la producer manager and uh, had a great collaboration it was super cool he was a great dude and we worked for three weeks and then you know he was like broke and working at a coffee shop and he would call literally call me every 4 months and be like hey like i really want to come back and record I, I just don't have any money and like i can't even get up to sf and i was like you know and he was a nice guy and i was like dude like just just get here and we'll we'll do whatever and like don't worry about the money part let's just you know we'll, we'll sort it all out just come on up you know and whatever he was living in la and like getting busy and um and then they ended up using um when they came, once he made his hit and then he got signed to Columbia and all that, he they ended up using like you know, one of a couple of the tracks that we had worked on ended up on the record. I would do anything for you and um, chin music for the unsuspecting hero. And th- those were on the or chin music song was on the the pumped up kicks single, so that was cool. Like the first two songs they put out, one of them was one that I produced. Mm-hmm. That was, I mean, that was really all there was to it. I mean, he. That thing just took off. Took
0: what I don't get, past. and what always seems to elude me, and it's like when I think when I think back to records that I have, and I use air quotes here, just because I'm being self deprecating, but like produced, I always get stuck. Like I can record, like that's not a problem. That's like the easiest thing in the world to me. But when it comes to and producing and and offering opinion and getting involved, like you're saying, and, and arrangement and parts. The business of producing eludes me. I don't get it. I never have. And I don't know why I always feel like, Oh, well, okay. I don't have a lot of money to get an attorney. And then the band doesn't have a lot of money and I don't even know if they're going to do anything. So how is this all going to work and points mm. and all that. And I just, I, I just go into a tailspin with it and mm. find that for me personally, it's just been easier just to say, If I get a production credit, great, but I'm going to record the shit out of this and I'm going to offer my opinion where it makes sense. So how did you come to get a grip
2: on all this? Well, first of all, I learned a shitload from Tony Isabella, who was the main booker at the Paradise Lounge, who was also the manager of Dan the Automator, the the producer. So I basically sat in the office and listened to her negotiate stuff for him, like God knows how many times. And so I just basically learned what all the roles are and what the producer does what the producer is responsible for, what a producer fee is, you know, what, how there's often producer, mixer, master, engineer, how some people do it all themselves. I went and worked with Bill Betrell, another Famous, famous producer up in Mendocino, totally amazing guy, amazing, unbelievably great sessions, super educational and fun. And, um, that guy is like, he's like, nobody does anything but me. I do it all. like there will be no, you know, he's like my best work. I sit with an artist. I engineer, play all the instruments, mix it, master it, give a dat tape to the label and say, put this on your CD like there is no one in between nobody else no one and i was like that's so badass like i can't even believe how cool that is that that is incredibly badass and then there's situations where people where all their jobs are separated out mm-hmm. and they all need to be different people and they all need to get paid separately and so for, i think i've pretty much got like a speech now where when someone who doesn't really know what's going on or even if they do know what's going on they call me up and they say hey I want to do three tracks. I want to have you produce three tracks. And I go, great. And we just start talking about, you know, what's the setup? Do I need an engineer? Is, you know, sometimes I can take them upstairs and we can do it all, all in my room there. Um, If it's a band, it's, it's preferable to have an engineer in to, to help, you know, with that. Because it just, it just makes it, at the end of the day, it will sound better. There's just a bunch of jobs and I just kind of delineate it. And, and I figured out numbers <laughs> that I have to stick to so that I've learned how to just be like, you know, just have a piece of paper. It's like, this is what needs to be accomplished. This is what it's gonna cost, bam. I learned how to write a deal memo for myself, you know, like Jim will agree to produce, mix, master, you know, and deliver five master recordings for this artist, you know, for a fee of X dollars per song and so on and so forth. And I probably, I'm super bro about everything. So I'm always like, did it take 10 days or 12 days? Like who's counting? You know, like, let's just get it done and make it awesome. I probably cut myself short here and there without meaning to, but you just kind of have to be like, hey, like, here's all the stuff. Here's all the things that need to happen. Here's what I can do. Here's how much it costs. When it's any serious amount of money, like over a $1,000 or a couple thousand dollars, that's when I'll do something like say, okay, we're going to do five tracks. It's going to cost this much. I'd like to do a little deal memo, like get paid half up front, get paid the other half when we're done. And that's just like being your own manager. That's just self-managing. And if mm-hmm. you had a manager, that's exactly what they would do. They'd be like, great, really great. You want to come and like do some songs with with, with Matt. Cool. So it's going to be X amount. Like we have you on the schedule, you need to send in half the money now. And then if you, if you, and I've found that the more you treat people that way, the better it makes everything work. I'm not sure why it's really weird, even though it's, it feels a little hard ass at first, it's a little hard to do because you feel like, Oh gosh, I know this person is like trying to figure out how to pay for this and you know, whatever. And obviously not when it's a record label or something like that, but the more kind of just like simple and straightforward you are in dealing with the business, just people respect that. I don't know why. It's like not, you, we don't have issues with any other business transactions in our lives. Like when you go to get your haircut, and they're like, "Okay, that's twenty-seven dollars." You're not, you're right not, you're check. not like, yeah. you're not like, "Oh man, I was hoping I could like, can I come back tomorrow and like <laughs> pay for that some other time?" You're just like, "Here you go." You know, you don't even question it, and you just have to kind of, you have to learn how to do that. It, it's hard to be your own manager, and I don't love being my own manager, but it saves
0: fifteen percent.
2: Yeah, it saves me some money. And and honestly, like uh, everyone I know that's qualified to be my manager, including the people that have been my manager, they're amazing people that I love. And they can't make enough money to be able to drop everything and get something done for me right when I need it done. And I kind of like to move fast. Like if I get an email on Tuesday at 11, I want to be responding by one o'clock. If someone's like inquiring about studio time, you know, sometimes studios get booked up. You know, and you can't really, you can't really be like, can I get back to you next week about that session in a month? You kind of have to be like, it's available. I'm penciling you in. Are you in or are you not in? You know, I've become a pretty fast moving machine in order to keep the career really going. It's a fast moving machine. And I like it. I like it like that. I like to respond to stuff fast, stay ahead of the game, get invoices out. Business, business, business is like the way I look at it. And then when I get, when I sit down to do the music part, I flip all that off and I totally, totally focus, totally trance out and totally focus on the music stuff. And that's, again, dude, I just, I have that. It's another one of those things where people have been like, you know, they've been like, you know, you've been sitting there for 11 hours. Like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, you know, what else, what else would I rather be doing if I'm not like, With my kids or my wife, I'm here and that's the only thing I need to be doing. Here's another confusing
0: thing to me about you is that, and you mentioned it earlier, where we really don't have a music industry per se in the Bay Area. We have recording studios, we have artists, people come in and out. There's a few locals, yet you somehow
2: meet a lot of people from outside
0: here that are fairly well-known people.
2: I'm just super lucky and and I don't even know. I do do my homework, and I do plant seeds. I think of it as planting seeds. And I've noticed that the more, if I'm willing to bug down to LA every eight to 12 weeks for a few days and be with some of my friends down there and people that I know, I've noticed that usually some seed will get planted. I'll just end up talking to someone or something will happen and it'll it'll plant a seed. I, I'm not shy about reaching out to people. I will totally like be sitting there in my computer and just have something totally random strike my fancy and I will totally look up that person and email them like out of the blue. I don't know why. It's, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing in a way, but in a way it's like it's led to some of the greatest stuff I've ever done. You know, the, I did this project with Angela Moore from Fishbone. And that happened because someone walked in the studio and it was like, man, I just saw the Fishbone movie and I'm so inspired. I just, I can't even believe how cool, like I love Angela so much and da da da, da. And I was like, well, let's get him up here, you know? And I just looked it up and emailed his manager and she was like, here's his number, call him. <laughs> and literally like nine days later, we were like recording a song, you know, with with the guy sitting in the, you know, plane ticket, saxophone. You know, sitting, walking in the door. And now that's turned into like two records. We made two records. We have a licensing deal in place. We have a record label. We've made 14 videos, you know, like tons of cool stuff. And it's still, still very much ongoing, you know? So I I just, there's a fearlessness thing. It's like, it's a little embarrassing to just like email like the president of Sub Pop and be like, hey, you know, like (laughs) what's going on? Like, hi. I just read your article, and that was really cool. And like, you know, anything going on? Sometimes, a lot of those people will so utterly blow you off, um, and you're like, you don't deserve to be blown off. You know, like you're actually a legitimate person. But it's it's also kind of funny. Like I've had, I, I sort of get this strange personal entertainment out of like emailing or re- reaching out to someone that that doesn't know who I am, having them blow me off, and then I'll like run into them six months later, and then they'll they'll be like, not that I'm anybody, not that I'm anybody. I'm not famous or anything, but like, you know, then they'll be like, oh, that was you. Like, and now you're being introduced by this other rad person. And like, why didn't you say so? You know? And I'm like, what are you going to say? I'm like, what am I supposed to say? I'm just, I'm just, you know, like, if you can't catch the vibe from not knowing who I am, then maybe you don't deserve to catch the vibe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you, let me ask you, when you do that, do you name
2: drop in those emails to just open the I don't eyes. No, in- I don't even know. I just, I just am not. Uh, usually it's because I really actually believe that there's that the person I'm hitting up would be interested in whatever it is. Like I emailed uh, Ishmael. What's his name from uh diggable planets. Who's an AR guy at sub pop now, or was maybe, maybe he isn't anymore, but you know, like I'm working with an artist that we were talking about him and his name came up and, you know when you when you just you know when you can type in someone's name and their contact form comes up in the first link that tells me that you're it's okay to contact them you know with that guy like i his dad was my history history teacher at uva random like he this i was in history uh, african-american studies class at uva and the teacher was this really awesome guy um and uh butler right ishmael butler i think is his name and um and he was like, and I went to his office hours one time. We were hanging out like talking and he was like, Oh, you're a musician. Yeah. My son is a musician. He just got signed to Electra records. His band is called diggable planets, you know? And I was like, Oh, cool. <laughs> and then, and then they blew up and then, um, uh, but anyways, I emailed him and I was like, you know, it's hard time working with and like your dad was my history teacher. And he totally got back. He got back to me within like 30 seconds. Like no joke. He was like, dude, that's amazing. Like, yeah. Like I'm about to go on a four month world tour. Like hit me up when I get back, you know? And. Who knows? I mean, I already planted a seed there. Who knows what that will lead to? Probably nothing, but that's really random. I don't, I don't do that that often. I don't like spam people. But when I, when I think of something that makes sense to me and it seems real, then I do it. I'm not afraid of you know, I'm not afraid of it. I've got nothing to lose. Like- as,
0: as you get more traction, more success, do you feel less inhibited to reach out to people? Yeah, because I find that with with this podcast as it's grown. If I want to contact somebody, I just contact them. Yeah. I don't. I don't even think twice about it.
2: I'm. I'm. I, I. You know, the world is being set up to be operating this way. It's like we're all kind of the same now. Like, like everybody's like on on the internet in some way or another, on somebody's stream or feed. It's kind of like, I don't know, something weird is happening with that. But yeah, I, I as much as you want, you know, I'd say like, I'm, I'm. I like it when people. I mean, I get hit up quite often by random people, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm not, I think it's cool. And I, I respond to everybody. Like I have a respond to everyone policy. I don't care how late I have to stay up one night to like finish my emails. Like I'm
0: all right. So you're, you're doing a lot. You're obviously very proactive. You're, you're very involved and and very passionate about what you do. And, And I'm kind of enamored by how you operate. And it's, it's pretty interesting. And I'm sure I could I should have them coffee with you more often. I think I could learn a lot from you. (laughs) Um, I'm sure you could teach me a few things. The work-life balance thing with, like, going down L.A. and being at studio, like, you've got a family, I know. You have a wife, you have kids. How do you make that work? How do you and your wife, like, make the time spent away versus the time spent together with the family?
2: Um, What's the balance there? Well, how do I make it work? You know, I take it slow. I'm always planning. We have a wall calendar. I'm a big fan of the wall calendar at the house, like the kind you buy at Office Depot for like nine ninety nine with a big space, you know. And and I, I find that um, as you get older, you start to like plan things more. Like we're going to all take a trip to Ohio to see my family. So you you kind of have to plan it ahead of time. I have the wall calendar, and I don't do that much traveling. I always sort of uh, I always multitask. So, I'll say I'll be doing something. Uh, I'll be, you know, there's an artist right now that I've been like performing with this kid, Andrew. I've been performing with him and he'll get a gig in LA. Like the last time I was in LA was on June 13th. Wait, it's not June yet. April, May, January. February 13th, March. Oh, maybe February. So, he had a gig on like February 12th or 13th in LA. And I was like, hey, so, you know, he's got a gig. I can spend a couple days there. I'm gonna pop down, get this gig done gig is going to mean there's going to be some kind of like other professional component to it. You know, meet some people, get some stuff done, zip back home. Um, Same thing with South by same thing with going to NAMM, the occasional, you know uh, the occasional tour. You know, I just went to Vegas and did a couple nights with Angelo and Claude, the drummer from Ween and stuff like that. And if I'm making money doing any of these things, then that's also, you know, I, I struggle with it. I struggle with it. But I don't have a single friend, even all my friends who aren't in the music business, um, which mo- most of them aren't, they're all like, you know, people travel, things come up, you know, you know, I also have friends who are on the who have families and stuff who are on the road six to eight to nine months out of every year, you know, like my friends in Galactic, they just are on the road all the time. And I'm just like, how do you, you know, I, I don't know how they, you know, that's got to be, you know, I, I uh, my friend Tim. Uh Tim Carter, do you know Tim? Oh, Carter? I know Tim Carter. You know, he's playing with Kasabian now. Yeah. And um Kasabian is huge. So his life is now lives in England and is in, is a rock star in a huge British rock band, right? Right. Kasabian is huge in England, you know. He headlined they headlined Glastonbury. I mean, they're big. And um <laughs> Tim's like one of my oldest friends and when he was like getting into Kasabian, I was like kind of jealous, you know. <laughs> and I've been in like I've been in some, a couple pretty big bands and toured around the world and stuff. So that's been really fun, but, uh, nothing quite that big. I was kind of jealous. And then I was like, and then I was like, yeah, but Jim, if like Tim called you up and was like, Hey, the touring keyboard player has to take six months off. Do you want to do it? Would I really want to do that? You know, like, you know, not only the family, but just like, would I really want to go be on the road for like six months traveling, 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 it's hard. It's fun when you're playing but it's, it's it also like,
0: removes you from the activity you're working yeah on. like
2: your life you no longer have a life and the, the main goal in life to me is, is to be like a really useful contributor to your society and your community like so useful just useful like if i if i were to go to tahiti a bunch of people would be like ah bummed out you know and and i want i you want to be useful you want to be needed and um you know, being on the road in somebody's band for six months playing, unless it's my band, you know what I'm saying? Playing keyboards or whatever. It's like, you're just, you have no life. You're gone. You're just gone. I mean, and then, uh, then, uh, then you're just, yeah, you can't really do anything. And, and why, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, it was perfect for Tim. Tim's not, Tim. Tim has no kids. He doesn't have kids. He's not, he's got an English girlfriend at the moment, but well, actually they're married. So he's got an English wife, but he's not beholden to anything. And, and that's cool. Um, I think I lost, I started rambling. I lost that.
0: Well, I mean, the responsibility to the family and, and right, just right, right. trying to make the two, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm work. lucky,
2: man. I'm just, I'm lucky. My wife understands as soon as we met, I was already traveling when we met. So like the first year we met, I had already, I was going to North by Northwest to play. And I was in that band tipsy touring around going to New York and Miami and LA and, um, she saw right away that I was this person, you know, with these occasional needs to go traveling and she gets it. So she kind of knows what she signed up for. And then I did tour when I was in head automatica. We toured quite a bit, like probably for like a year overall, over the course of a couple years, we toured for like a year where I would be gone for six weeks or eight weeks. Yeah. It was fun, but you know, it just, yeah. Like I'm way more interested in the long game. Like I want to be out there touring like Willie Nelson style, like when I'm 70. So I don't ever want to stop doing this. And I want, I mean, I have friends who are in the like folk music scene or not folk, but like, like organic, you know, acoustic music within guitars and bass and drums and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That, that are my good friends. and, And like, they're going to be touring for the rest of their lives and I'm going to be with them. Like, we've already talked about it. Like, like, you know what I mean? I'm like, Oh yeah. Like, I will be when I'm like 57, I don't want to just be like sitting on my front porch, like hitting a golf ball into a little coffee cup. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not interested in anything. I want to like, I want to like, be, you know, active. I want to be doing this like in, in fits and starts. And when you look at the really long careers, you know, it's like, you know, it, it's easy to look at somebody's like, like, I just read the Elvis Costello book mm-hmm. and it's easy to just be like, well, Elvis Costello obviously just been doing nothing, but either in a studio or traveling since 1977 but the reality is he was also like home a lot like there were whole periods of his book you know where he's like in 1981 in the spring there was three months where i didn't really have anything going on so i like drank a lot of whiskey and wrote So 77 songs and and it's it, looking back it's easy to assume that these people that are entertainers are just consumed by it mm-hmm. but they also had families and lives and things going on and you know days off and days at home and it's not quite it, it the the version you see of everything is always like these book full of pictures all on a stage or all in a studio you know and yeah. so you don't really you just are like man that person just lives the dream they're right. never even bored for one second but that's not that's not reality when i'm 60 my book full of pictures will be me on all these stages and my kids will be like dude you must have just been like off your out of your mind and i was like no i was I was like, remember when you were like three, we were all hanging out like that whole year, you know? Um,
0: you know, it's always a challenge too to, to balance the the financial end of it. If you do have multiple days off, you don't know where the next project is and keeping the money flowing, it, it's like, it's a juggling really
2: act. It's really hard. Um, I just keep hanging on by this thread and and the thread doesn't seem to snap. And then the more... Uh, This sounds super hippie, but the more faith I put in myself, like the more I just sort of, you know, there's something, here's another way of putting it. This is a weird one. It has to do with money. And it sounds like something you would read in one of those books, like the secret, you know, but I cannot tell you the amount of times that I have. I I feel like if there's a God and I'm not convinced there is that, that my destiny on earth Is to be like always just barely doing better than breaking even, like always barely breaking even. Like I'm not sure I'm ever gonna be like a guy who has like an extra like million dollars or even any dollars. But um, I mean, I have a few extra, but you know, nothing, 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 nothing to to write home about. So I, every time I've ever been like like scratching my head about like I want to buy something, and let's say the thing costs three hundred dollars. Like I swear to you, if I went upstairs right now and I was like, you know what, I do want Auto Tune. You know, I have Melodyne, but I want AutoTune. I'm just going to buy it, you know. I get out my credit card, ching, chick, 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 you know, $350 later, I'm downloading the plugin. I, I almost guarantee, like, between now and tomorrow, I would get an email or a phone call or something. would be like, hey, um, I need to do, like, one day of studio time, like, next week. And I need to do this, like, nine hours. Like, how much? And I would do the math, and I'd be like, it's going to be, like, $400 that I'm going to make that day, or however many. And it would, like, pay for the thing. I've literally, like, hit buy and, like, refreshed my email and had the same amount of money, like, like, hey, guys, we just got a license on your track that you gave us two years ago. The license is really small. It's for, like, the web. It's $1,500. But, you know, is that cool? And you're like, sure. And you're like, that's so weird. I literally just bought a $1,500 keyboard, like. I just bought it <laughs> just literally like today and and I've learned. And, and so that, that has to do, like, I've literally seen that happen, but it has to do with investing in yourself where like, and having faith in yourself. And I just kind of broke through, man. I broke through this plateau or this wall where something always comes up, like something, something always seems to happen right when I needed to happen. And I swear to God, like, it's just the weirdest thing. I mean, I've had, you know, I've had I've had rough days and something always comes along to to, you know, offset. And and, and, and also, the you know, when, when when there's nothing going on, that's when you got to like actually that's when you got to really challenge yourself. And I've, I've gotten kind of good at that, too. Like sometimes I'm sitting up. I mean, like today after you leave, I don't have anything really to do today. Like I don't have anybody coming in. I don't I'm kind of ahead of all of my. 20 projects going on and they're all kind of where they need to be tomorrow. I have Domino from hieroglyphics coming over and we're going to like work on some music. So wouldn't it be rad if I had something really cool to show him, you know, I could wait till he gets here and be like, Hey, like, what do you want to do? Like make a beat, you know, and start p- pressing a drum machine. Or I can like, I can make something cool that I can be like, you know, I can start thinking about him and what he likes and, listen to some of the old tracks we worked on and sort of get into that head space, you know, sort of like tune everybody else out, sort of tune in his like vibe and even just spend, spend 20 minutes listening to like, he loves, he loves like seventies soul, like really great, 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 obscure, like seventies soul music. So I'll go on YouTube and I'll type in seventies soul. And after a good many clicks, I'll be listening to some things that and kind of like, I'm like, grabbing little like like reverb sounds or like like oh yeah that one guitar like when you play guitar and it just sounds like a buzzsaw like i, sh- I should have that ready you know and so you're proactive about i'm about always your doing that i'm always doing that i'm always doing that. i'm working on records i'm working on songs tracks like like literally all the time i mean just constantly a lot of it in my brain like just just thinking about stuff and, and again like I love it. It's like something to do, you know, something to think about. I want to
0: talk to you a little bit about, um, speaking of hard times and, and perspective and kind of, uh, your lust for life. You really have, yeah, this passion that's just incredible. You have a son named Teddy that died from cancer. Yeah. Um, I was at the Memorial and
2: you were there. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. That was a blurry day for me. So I'm sure sometimes it was. It takes me a minute to remember.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Being a father, and actually not even knowing you all that well, but just kind of being there at the memorial, I like I can't even put into words. And in fact, the day I was there, like I, uh, lots of tears for myself. I couldn't even talk to you, and I told you that I, I. You came up and you you just had the same passion. Hey, Matt, thanks for coming. And like I was ready to explode <laughs> in tears. I could not speak, and I had wow. to walk away from you. And the things that times like that teach you are, I mean, you can't even put them into words. Yet, I, I have to ask, you know, all the, the the pain that came with that experience, what that has taught you and how that has informed everything you do from now on, how you treat people, how you do business, how you treat each day. I'm sure it informs everything.
2: Yeah, yeah, man. Um, Radical, radical transformation. I mean, and the the interesting thing for me, the interesting thing for me is that before he was diagnosed with cancer and before I sat down with a doctor who said, you know, if all goes well, he's probably got two years to live or something like that and they said that to me on like August 16th or 17th 2010 uh when i was sitting in the hospital in Santa Rosa and they were like you know he's like if all goes well you know two years to live or something and and um i was already a person who was pretty like open minded and easy going and had pretty good perspective on life and so in a weird way, like for that to get transformed so radically, it's just kind of turned me into this Uber Zen person because I, there's really no quick way to say it, but I'll, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about it forever, but like, you know, basically from that point on until the end, you know, I spent every day, two and a half years, you know, we were in the hospital for something like I don't even know how many days hundred hundreds of days hundred and fifty days or something sleeping in the hospital staying in the hospital driving back and forth to from to Oakland Kaiser I mean just the amount of work and effort and the it was like taking on ten new jobs it was like carrying around a hundred pounds of weight everywhere you go it was mortifying and terrifying and and you know. You would get your hopes up, you would get your hopes down. This was all happening to a kid who's when when he started when he was 18 months old. So if you've ever been around an 18 month old, they're already a handful. So then to like hook them up to chemotherapy and have them on an IV pole all the time, you know, and having to be in bed a lot. I mean, just everything about it, just so soul crushingly hard. After an experience like that, so I mean, you know, I don't even, you know, everyone who might be listening can probably just imagine for themselves how incredibly soul-crushingly hard that would be and how 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 much weight that kind of worry puts on you. It's like um, you know, it's like if you ever looked over, if you've ever been standing some up, up somewhere really high and like there's no guardrail, like the side of a cliff. And if you like edge up and you look over and you kind of get this weird feeling like God, I'm so close to like, I could just like fall right off this thing and just, that's it, you know? And it's like terrifying. I mean, some people are fearless and maybe it doesn't terrify them. But if you're somebody to whom being in like a near death situation is really terrifying, it's like, it felt like that all the time uh, for him for like two and a half years. It was like being in like a, oh my God, like the near death situation, you know, just, just every minute of every day. And that's like, you know, I'm still figuring that one out. I'm still a little surprised when I like walk into a place that's like busy and happy. And I'm just like, wow, like all this activity, like so much people. And there's just, you know, we're going over to the burger store or the burger shop and just, you know, just standing in line and getting a root beer. And like, like for two and a half years, like nothing like that was ever enjoyable. Not even for one minute. And now it's still not really enjoyable. It's fun to like go out for lunch. It's like, or do something fun, but nothing is, everything is temporary. Like, it's, it, yeah, like, like, like I, I say this often, like, I don't, I, I sort of don't, I still, I still know how to have fun and be like a positive person on the surface. But it really, I kind of now sort of sit back and look at life and I just sort of chuckle. Like, I don't think, I don't and, and and that and that's an empowering thing because now like when something like that everybody's talking about is so important is happening, it just just doesn't seem important to me. Like the Super Bowl. Like like Lady Gaga, the Super Bowl. I'm like, I'm like, eh, that's no big deal. Like it's just another Super Bowl. There's there's already been a bunch. There'll be more. It's entertainment. There'll, there'll be another Lady Gaga. There'll be a different Gaga. There'll be like she it was Madonna, now it's her, it'll be somebody else. Like it's just the same old thing. Yeah, I bet I bet she probably like did something really spectacular, like like flew in or like fell from a parachute or <laughs> did something really mind-boggling, right? Right, everybody, right? And it's like, yeah, totally. And it's like, yeah, I could have pretty much predicted exactly how that would go. Um and everything just like everything seems a little bit like eh like everything. And why I feel that way, I don't know but it's it's detached from who i am as a person so like and it has to do with the fact that that i had this person with me this little boy who was such a smiley happy sunshiny kid who faced all this adversity and who i got to know it's almost like he visited from another planet like i got to hang out with this like alien this person from another planet for like three and a half years who did nothing but endure pain and hardship and smile about it the entire time and then went away and you're like, just, it kind of makes you laugh at almost everything else that's happening in the world, especially things that people are claiming are so difficult. So like, I can't, for example, take anybody's like, like breakup record seriously. Like I remember like sometime in the midi- middle of Teddy's thing, Kanye West put out a record. It was like 808s heartbreak. and heartbreak. It was like heartbreak. Like I know all about heartbreak. And it was like, dude, you know, you don't, you don't have any idea what you're doing. Like, you don't know anything about heartbreak and I I don't like to demean other people's life experiences, but I kind of have the right to. So I'm like, yeah, I'm like, dude, I don't care about your heartbreak record and I never will. And no, nobody else's either. Really? Like really they don't, or, or, or just, or, 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 you know, like, like movies and TV shows that show people dying, you know, really gratuitously. And you're like, have you ever seen somebody die in front of you? Cause it's, really hard. really difficult. So I know it's easy to get like a fake body and throw it in a room in a TV show and like shoot it full of fake bullets and, you know, then go on and shoot your next scene. But like, so I don't know. There's a lot of things like that. There's a lot of like mental games that your mind plays when you've been through something so traumatic, you just interpret, you interpret everything differently. I interpret all of life is a, is a different interpretation. If you are healthy and not dying of cancer, you should be literally waking up every morning going, hallelujah, like throwing up your hands and looking into the sky and saying, it is a beautiful day. I am healthy and I'm not dying of cancer. And everything else is so gravy. It doesn't matter if I have to eat three pieces of Wonder Bread today and drink a glass of water because that's all I can afford. Or if I have to go shovel shit for somebody on their farm, or if I get to go do something really fun, like sit in with the Rolling Stones or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's whatever you get to do, if you're healthy and you're not dying of cancer, you are lucky. Like you're, You are winning. You are winning big time. You are like, you are so far ahead of the game because right now there's thousands of kids and people sitting in hospital rooms experiencing that all encompassing mortifying fear that I was sunk into for 90 for, for two and a half years. And you are, you, if you don't have that fear, you should just be like, how great, how much greater could anything be? None more great. Everything is great. And so now, now that I'm slowly being freed from the clutches of that mortifying fear because enough time is going by. It's really hard for me to not just like look at my life and look at what's happening and just be like, everything is so goddamn great. Like when that's not happening, like you just don't even know, even though I'm a bit detached and even though like, it's hard for me to remember what it's like to have like un un in uninhibited fun. Like we went to Vegas with Angelo and we played two shows and, he sat in with ween and I went to the ween shows and they were really fun. And I had never really seen them. And then we played two like sold out shows and 500 people there dancing, just like so much fun, like, you know, just a total blast. And, but still, even when I'm like standing on stage in the middle of a like ripping keyboard solo, like jamming out with these incredible musicians, somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm like, and in 90 minutes, this will be over. And then I'll be like in bed again. And then, like tomorrow will come, and I'll be like brushing my teeth somewhere, and I just kind of like don't buy into like almost anything. I kind of, hmm. I kind of am just, I just want to, you just want to stay free and healthy. Like healthy is everything. And 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 and, and, and the last thing I'll say is, um, is how I'm able. I'm still a little detached, but it really makes me want to make everything count. So. And it really makes me want to like, not, I I am so fearless now about like trying and saying what I think and not being afraid to like, to like hold people accountable when they say they're going to do something and be like, hey, you said you were going to like do this and like, what's up? And not like just having a real, you know, like Teddy, Teddy has, because of that experience, I mean, I'm just nothing, nothing, nothing bad, nothing so bad can ever happen to me again. You know, I mean, I mean, I guess it technically could, but, but what, what could possibly, you know, like, like when you, when you look at all the things that people are like tripping out about, you know, on a daily basis, you know, like what's going on in their career or their relationship it's just like, Oh, please. Like, just, just do whatever you want to do. And like, don't be afraid. Like, you know, that's why, like I talk about reaching out to people and, and trying stuff. It's just like, you know, you've got nothing to lose. What's the worst thing that can happen? You know, like, like that's where the no fear part of it comes in, especially in like an art career where you pretty much have to be putting yourself out there. And believe me, that's hard. Like there's a lot of ways where I've, I've definitely had days where I'm like, I'm like, well, I should be the guy who no longer has to put himself out there. Like if anybody is doing that, that's me. I should get to just like sit in a room And somebody should send me like people to work with, but that's just, that's not going to happen. It's not the way it works. Like
0: you just got to be, you have to continue to be proactive.
2: You have to be proactive. And, you know, in those situations you have to make, I mean, remember I had to, I had to be proactive. I had, when, when he was going through treatment, I had to be there for him and he was just a little kid. You know, if your 72 year old uncle gets cancer and is deathbed ridden, you're like, You know, and he's like, get everybody, get out. I just want to watch, I just want to watch Archie Griffith all day and bring me my soup and like, don't, I don't want everybody in here feeling sorry for me. But a little tiny kid, an 18 month old baby doesn't know any words to even say that. So they have no idea what's going on. So I had to like entertain him and be a dad, like a positive, like everything's going to be all right, dad, for all that time, because he was only like, did you ever see life is beautiful? like that movie about with Roberto Big Nini and the, it's about the concentration camp and he gets sent to the concentration camp with his five-year-old. So he tells the five-year-old and he's Jewish, you know, and they're so now they're at like Auschwitz or whatever. And he tells the five-year-old that it's just a game and that all the soldiers are just playing soldiers and that all the work they're doing, that all the rocks they're carrying, like are actually like movie set rocks. And so that the little boy is just like, Oh, okay, cool. Like, cool. Like toy soldiers. Like we're at like a, fun, like weird, like soldier camp, you know? And he keeps this myth up with his little five-year-old the entire movie and it's devastatingly sad. And that's basically what I had to do, you know, is like put on this happy face because what was I going to do? Like just, just you know, fall apart at that point? That that was not an option, you know what I mean? Like there was no, like, and I had my other son and my wife and I was just like, I had to basically Superman through that thing and then I had to realize that in order to keep myself sane, I had to Superman for myself. So Supermaning for myself means buying a rad convertible car, getting gear when I want it, using this studio to make music to like, you know. Basically, I was like, I am going to gift myself the life that I want and deserve, and the and and that comes with a out an outreach outgoing. You know, making the effort, trying hard, not being afraid to show up, not being afraid to jump in the car and go do something kind of lifestyle, which ultimately I think is what I like anyway. So, I mean, well, I'm sorry
0: that, that, and I'm sorry it doesn't cut it, but I mean, I'm sorry that we're having this conversation um, that it took that for you to have the, you know, the chains taken off of life for you to do what you're doing and do it so fearlessly and with such passion. And even for somebody who, you know, didn't know Teddy and didn't know you all that well, uh, it was devastating for me to watch as a father because I followed the, the, the online blog that you all had put out. And, and it really, it did influence me. I, 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 I must be honest. And in, in that it caused me to be a little more like life is short, man. Let's get on this train and go and yeah. quit fucking around yeah. and quit pretending and quit, you know. So you're at a spot now where it's been it's been some time and and you've exercised a lot of this fearlessness and this this work that you've done. As, as much as we can make a transition to this, currently, uh, and where we're recording this for the audience, um, is, uh, we're in Berkeley, California, and you're at this spot now where you've found yourself in this situation where you met these guys and they were trying to do a label and you put yourself out there. They approached you. So where are you at now with all of this? Well,
2: um, I'm in this studio. My former studio was with my other partner, Brandon from Rondo brothers. Um, We had a studio at his spot in the city and I was commuting there. When Teddy was diagnosed, I was no longer willing or able to commute. So, um, and right around that time I met these guys. Like I said, things, things happen to me, like right when they're supposed to. It's, it's quite strange. Like met these guys with the studio down the street from my home and I lived two miles that way down the street from my house in Berkeley, Teddy gets diagnosed. These guys offer us a job. They started a label called ninth street opus and they offered Brandon and I a job being like staff producers for their label job started on, it was like a really killer job, like internet money job, you know, (laughs) like tech, tech money job, but making records. So, you know, something that would maybe happen once in a lifetime. And, uh, they offered us the job. We took it started on August 1st, 2010 and August 13th is when we realized something was wrong with Teddy. So, so for like the two and a half years, he was in treatment. I had this kick-ass job that I was able to do like, 70% of what I wanted to be able to do with it. I still actually did quite a bit. Long story short, they built this lovely studio facility with an extra room in it that I'm currently housing all my keyboards in a little project room, like a little suite that they didn't have any use for. And then uh, their label thing didn't work out. It actually worked out well, but it was not financially doing what they wanted to do. So they moved it over to an internet radio streaming service, which also didn't really work out was also a really great idea. And, you know, after all the rubble of all the businesses starting and not, and not becoming financially, you know, successful, um, which is funny because I'm the guy with like, you know, by always keeping my overhead low and like being my own manager, I've always been able to have a living, you know, it's just all about you. Like, you know, your overhead's got to match your, your income. It's just like, it's just simple stuff, like supply and demand. Anyways. um, Yeah. Uh, you know, I've always had a studio at home. I never rented a, you know, I would go to the occasional recording studio, but Brandon and I ran a good Rondo brothers business. Cause we didn't have a, we the studio was at his house in his basement, you know? So. And Rondo brothers was essentially a production. Yeah. Team. Production team. And we did so much work, but like, you know, you just got to keep your overhead down, you know? And like, don't go out for like $200 dinners every night and then you can, you're fine. Um, so anyways, um, yeah, now the studio is here, and I'm like co-managing it with a, with another engineer and we're we're booking it and recording. like where I'm at now is, um, just like juggling lots of things, happily juggling lots of things. Um, I've just finished a bunch of records, Butterscotch, an artist called Butterscotch, wrote some more songs for Galactic had cuts on their record last year into the deep the Macy Gray song that I wrote that Macy Gray covered or sang, or I wrote with her, um, for galactic. Um, that all happened like was that last year. Maybe it was like a little bit before that. I recorded an Oakland band called no lovely thing here. I just recorded another band with the Jeff Campbell, the singer static and surrenders, his band recorded here. There's so much stuff. I've been doing a tons of co- tons of uh, composition work, which is another thing that I do in addition to, just sitting with an artist and producing them. I can also like write music for film and TV um, is the professional way to say it. You know, I have a couple different agents for that who will get me the occasional job, like not constantly, but like just enough to be like a little extra work and income. Um, last year I composed, there's a thing that Starbucks did called upstanders mm-hmm. where they, um, Starbucks did this big like social outreach initiative where they made 10, 10 five-minute movies about people in the country doing great, amazing stuff, and they called them upstanders, and and um, I scored them all. So, like, there was 10 of them, and I scored, you know, I did all the music for them. It was kind of background music, but sometimes I got them to turn it up in some spots so you could actually hear what I was doing. It was really cool. It was a really fun project. So that that tends to, that's like another iron I keep in the fire. I sort, You know what, I sort of, I realized my my music career is kind of like I'm like a chef. And I have this kitchen of tons of burners and ovens. And I have like all these things cooking all at the same time. And some are like simmering just barely on, you know, and, and that would be the equivalent of like working with an artist who's on the road and doesn't really need me to do anything, but will hit me up every once in a while and say, Hey, that one track we were working on like last year, is that still sitting there? Can you send me that? And maybe that's it, you know? And then I have other things that are like cooking, like currently cooking. And then other things are like baking in the oven. And some of them require me to be really hands on and like checking every five seconds. And some of them are just like, you know, that pie is just cooling on the rack, just let it cool for a while, like, check it out tomorrow. You know, and if you're a good chef, right, you can, you can make lots of different dishes, you know, you don't just only make one thing. I mean, like some people do, and that's what they do. But I think, A really killer chef is like, I can make the Italian, I can make the French, I can like, whatever's in your kitchen, I'll make something with it, you know, and that's sort of how I like, look at the music life these days, like, you know, keep, keep putting, keep, keep getting ideas, keep putting stuff on the more stuff I put on the fire, the more it will like initiate other things to happen, like somehow, like, I don't, again, it's like an energy, it's like an energy thing. Like, like if I keep making me, and especially with social media, if I'm working on something and I post a little film of myself playing a cool little keyboard line just for fun, um, you know, it takes literally 10 seconds. I wouldn't do it if it took more than 20 seconds for me to do, <laughs> because I don't have the patience, but if it takes like less than 30 seconds for me, I'll cool line, and I post it, Like a week later, somebody will, something will happen because of it. Somebody will be like, Hey, that was cool. That thing you were doing, you know, I remind, it reminded me that you're like out there, what's going on, you know? And then suddenly something's going on. Whereas before there was nothing like action begets action. I'm a big believer in that. So like every day I try to take at least two actions towards, you know, either I create something new or I send an email that is part of my need to create something new, or I, I dig down and like spend an hour listening to music I've never heard. You know, I, I'm I'm about to do some recording with someone who was like, maybe I want to cover a Bob Dylan song, and I'm like, I'm like, cool. I've been wait, literally been waiting for an excuse for 25 years to go listen to nothing but Bob Dylan for like five days because I've never done that. You know, never. I've heard lots of Bob Dylan along with everybody else on the planet but I've never sat down and listened to Blood on the Tracks like all the way through, you know, and now I have. <laughs> so like that's, you know, that's really cool and educational and interesting. And like, you know, the tones are really unique, you know, and just, it's just trippy the way some records get made. Like, you know, some of these records I listened to and it just sounds like nobody did anything. Like, <laughs> it just sounds like everybody just like walked in the room and they were like, are the mics on? And it was like, yep. And it was like, oh, let's play it. You know, and then they, they played it one time and they were like, seem okay. You know, you and, know, and they're like, "Is it okay. In there, you know, and it's like, yep. And they're like, all right, let's do the next one. You know, like, like nobody at no point was anybody like, let's, let's think about the bridge. Let's, let's just take, let's run that bridge in a loop for a while and write another melody. Like nobody ever did anything like that. I don't know. It's just, it's just interesting stuff. Um, what role does, uh,
0: you know, I know that you talked about hiring, um, engineers to come in when you're producing. Do you enjoy the, the action of engineering yourself?
2: I do. I do when it's I, – I, I do in the sense that um, that I really fall – I'm a total ears person. I'm like a 100% ears person. So I like engineering when I do stuff that pleases my ears. So when I go – when I listen to the drums and then I go, hmm, I don't know why, but I'm compelled to go in there – Move the kick drum back, kick drum mic back a foot. Put the snare drum mic closer to the snare, and move the overheads also back a foot. But take the one then and put it a little closer to the ride cymbal. For some reason, I'll like that better. And then I go do all that, and then I come back and I listen, and I go, yeah, cool. That's like that makes me happy. That's like, but I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm literally just doing what my ears are suggesting to me. I'm not. I'm probably knocking something out of phase a little bit. Or capturing using the kick drum mic to capture room frequencies—it it's not supposed to capture, or something like that. And so I like I like getting into that nitty gritty of engineering as an ears based thing, where I like having somebody around. Is the person will say, you know, you know, hey Jim, you know, i have my engineer Calvin Turnbull, like one of my favorite people, and they'll say, hey Jim, <clears throat> uh, check out what happens when I. I set this EQ on the overheads. Hear the difference, and then he plays it for me, and I go, "Oh my God, the way you EQ it is so much better." Like, you know, you're because he'll he'll EQ those overheads so that I can hear the snare better, not so I can hear the cymbals better. You know what I'm saying? Like he'll right. he'll be doing it for a reason that's that's underneath the thing you would think. Right. And it'll be like, oh yeah, that's so much better, man. Thank you." Like, huh. and I'll been in my in my mind, I'm like. Oh, thank God I have him here. I would have just screwed this whole record up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Jim, thank you so much for, for doing this and, and um, making yourself available and my talking so openly with me.
2: Absolutely, man. Anytime.
0: Jim Greer here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Real fantastic interview, in my opinion, and a great guy to talk to. He's been through a lot and uh, has a lot to show for it, I will say that. That's for sure anyhow we are out of time but before we go i want to say if you have any questions or comments please feel free to email me matt at workingclassaudio.com i'd love to hear from you until then we are out of time so i think we got to say thanks to everybody so let's thank our friend cliff truesdell let's thank cole williams and chuck smith and let's thank our sponsors Lawton audio focal monitors audio technica and universal audio and i especially want to thank you i sincerely appreciate the time you take to listen Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear